Want more of the Josh Scanlon podcast? Please. Please. Here you go. The Josh Scanlon podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Josh Scanlon podcast. This episode first appeared as a video on my YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash heritage wealth planning. I hope you find it informative. Thanks. All right, my friends, I'm going to share with you the most underrated speech ever in history of mankind. It's the Eisenhower farewell address. And you, you might know it as a milita- military industrial complex address. Uh, but there's so much more than that, so much more. I'm going to share with you the whole speech on this uh, video. But listen to the seven minute thirty seven, yeah, seven minute thirty second mark of it in particular, where he says a government contract has replaced the free thought of universities now. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing it along those lines. It's uh, it's actually quite frightening, frankly, and <clears throat> where I would have labeled that the educational industrial complex. And uh, it's amazing how prescient uh, Eisenhower was. I, I uh, I always discounted uh, Ike. I did um, it, it just because he's the typical squishy Republican, like, you know, just go on to get along. Uh, but when I read this uh, and, and on top of that, as the people who were uh, loving on Ike uh, because of the military industrial complex were, were kind of on the left, actually. I mean, Ike was a Republican. It seemed like some of his biggest fans were somewhat anti-military. Now, they would say they're anti-military, that we don't need military uh, you know, invading all these countries and stuff. And I 100% agree with that. I think there's more to it uh, than the anti-military uh, from those on the left. I think all those people are just anti-military. And Eisenhower identified the military-industrial complex. And thus, they uh, they said, yes, that's it. That's a military-industrial complex. It's uh, taking over. Generals are running our Nation, uh, you know, we're, Bush is just trying to bomb everybody to death, and Reagan, and you know, blah blah blah, and uh, and, and it's funny they they left out the other part of this, which is the educational industrial complex uh, that also has a huge impact on society and our affairs as well. When you have all these uh, bureaucrats on school campuses, administrators taking over with no good intentions whatsoever. Everyone gets all upset about the professors, not the professors that are, I mean, some professor whack, don't get me wrong. It's the administrators, the administration of these universities are being uh, corrupted from the, from the, I mean, just, it's, it's nuts, man. And uh, it's just the administration is being corrupted uh, from the, from the internal organs are just rotting away and we're just adding more and more administrators uh, and, and that's not good for education. It's just weird how Eisenhower saw this coming. And he talks about how essentially the redneck engineer t- tinkering in his garage is going to be displaced uh, because of the need for government legitimacy in a government funding. And I just uh, that's frightening. Big government, big business, big labor, all that stuff frightens me to no end. And the fact that uh, Eisenhower in his very unique a uh, soft-spoken way. Uh, it's I just I got nothing but newfound respect. A guy on a survival podcast, this guy named Jack Spierko, who I follow, who talks a lot about a lot of preparation work and what. Not survival, like, oh zombies. It's just survival. How to grow things, you know, using the uh, you know comfort, comfy oil. Uh, if you got skin issues and stuff, just you know, basic. Um, just basic survival skills in, in terms of, you know, just taking, making sure you're prepared for things that could go wrong. Uh, he's the one that introduced me uh, to this uh, Eisenhower farewell address. And uh, I, I find it incredibly, like I said, prescient, informative, interesting as well. And uh, man, I just, I got newfound respect. And I will tell you at the end of the day, 
after seeing eight years of Bush and eight years of Obama, I think many of us who used to be on the right have changed dramatically in terms of our overall political opinion. Uh, we're not the Bush type of right anymore, that's for sure. And I, I wonder if some of those on the left uh, who are big on Obama see what's going on with the left and aren't the, the I hate to say Obama type of left, because I think Obama could I think Obama could have been. I just, man, I just, it was a missed opportunity. I think with Obama, it's, it's too bad. But anyway, I have a, I don't think it's, well, maybe it was Obama. I mean, he did run with Sal, uh, what's his name? The freaking bomber who wrote in the New York Times on September 11th uh, of 2001. He literally had an article in the New York Times that he wished he would have done more on September 11th, 2001. Bill Ayers, that's what it was. Obama used to pile around with that guy. So Obama, he, I just, eh, I don't know. But at the end of the day, um, I still think there's an opportunity he missed in terms of uh, helping uh, some of our less affluent communities. If you know what I'm saying, I just, man, I just, I think it's a missed opportunity. But he had to appeal to the people who got the money. The people who got the money are on the coastal elites, and they, they're all about green stuff, green this, green that, and not about uh, social economic issues. They're just not. They're about green, 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 green. It's just, man. And then the educational establishment too. And so that's where Obama. And they did their dear colleague letter, letter about Title IX stuff and not for girls playing sports, but actually uh, going after boys have been accused many fraudulently of, uh, of bad things on campus. And uh, many of them were young black men and uh, they had no right to a trial. No, nothing. Uh, completely, completely Salem witch trials. And Obama went with that hook on the sinker because I do think a lot of his uh, his biggest proponents, uh, the, the wealthy elite, were on the coasts. And, uh, and they like green and they like, uh, let's just say other things that don't fit very well with with a lot of day to day Americans. That's for sure. It's just too bad. I think Obama could have been a lot better. And look, I didn't vote for him, but I was uh, cautiously optimistic and uh, and it's just disappointing. Now, is it all his fault? No, 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 no. I'm telling you, it's not. It's not. It's I mean, my goodness, Republicans. The, I mean, this is the way it is. This is the false dichotomy of, of politics is that if their side wins, my side loses. And just after I just showed you with the Reagan tip O'Neill coming to terms on the uh, Social Security Ref uh, Bipartisan uh, Reform Act, it's too bad it has to be that, that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. And uh, it's just interesting kind of turn all that background to, to Eisenhower seeing this. And uh, anyway, so uh, you can change. I mean, I'm telling you, I've changed a lot. You know, I mean, I start off on the far left. I went to the pretty far right, the Buchanan right in 1992. I mean, Bush was running against uh, Buchanan was running against Bush. And I didn't like the first Bush. Not at all. I voted for Buchanan in the primary and I voted for Perot in the, in the general uh, just because of the first Bush. I said, this guy, he's not doesn't represent me. He represents the, the wealthy elite, but not me. Just gotten out of the army and never had any money. And uh, this, you know, he was he was looking out for me. Let's just put it that way. The corporate interest. I probably would have uh, gone with Clinton, frankly, if uh, I just the, the, the gun stuff. It, I mean, I'm telling you, it just I, I can't go over people who think I have no right to own a firearm. I just can't. I never will ever, 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 ever. It's an inherent right granted to us, not by the Constitution, but by our creator and uh, the Second Amendment. Isn't to be taken lightly. Uh, Second Amendment is there for a reason. And, uh, and the idea that the Democrats like Clinton knew uh, not to poo poo it, but, you know, he got bamboozled by his own left wing. And that's uh, and I kind of think that happened a little bit with Obama, too, which is which is unfortunate. But it is what it is. Anyway. So after eight, 16 years of Bush and then Obama, I think a lot of people uh, see that a lot of people who are on the left you know, minded up here, more freedom left. They say, yeah, this isn't. I don't want that kind of craziness that's going on right now on the left. 
And a lot of people on the right who say kind of freedom-minded right say, yeah, I don't want that kind of corporatism that's going on, on the right either. And I certainly don't want uh, the Chamber of Commerce legislating uh, how Main Street lives their lives. And so we got this almost, I think there's a bipartisan opportunity for uh uh, to be made here. And I, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, the left doesn't, I mean, the normal left doesn't want big government any more than the normal right does. The normal left, the normal right doesn't want big business any more than the normal left does. And I think there's, oh, there's this opportunity there. And I think both sides recognize union in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Union, I don't want mandatory unions, but the, the idea of, of workers joining together to represent their interests with their employer I don't, most people don't have any problem with that is when it's mandated and you have to hire thugs or the thugs are in charge of you like what happened in Pennsylvania uh, when they're competing against non-union shops is horrific. And we hear this all the time. No one wants them, at least not us on the right. We don't want that stuff. Uh, but having union representation uh, in of itself isn't a bad thing. It's just when the union representation becomes corrupt and line their own pockets uh, with, with the, the mandatory dues that they they are entitled to receive because of law. That's not good. So listen to the speech. I, man, it's just it's it's wonderful. An awesome speech. Eisenhower, I, to his credit. Don't forget, it's Eisenhower who sent the troops to Arkansas so that little black girl could go to school. It wasn't John F. Kennedy. It wasn't FDR. It was Eisenhower. Now, did FDR do other things? Yes. Did JFK do other things? Yes. But this is what ticks me off has forever ticked me off. The two things drive me crazy. Klan were not Republicans. All right. The Klan were not Republicans. The, the guy who killed JFK was not a conservative. He was a communist. And it was not the Democrats who sent troops to Arkansas so a little black girl under the most evil premise could go to school. It wasn't. It was Eisenhower. And I just, I don't understand. You got it. So whenever you see the history of being abused, you got to stand up and say, no, that's not what happened. Not what happened. Klan weren't part of the Republican Party. Eisenhower wasn't a Democrat. Lee Harvey Oswald was not a conservative Republican out of Dallas. All right. You got to set, you got to set the record straight. On top of that, Reagan did raise taxes. Reagan did sign the abortion bill in California. I mean, it's, the truth needs to be known both sides. And, uh, how easy we can forget the truth. So anyway, I hope you find this of interest. I've always subscribed. If you have other things you um, that you find that I could post on this website, uh, YouTube, that's called Creative Content or Common, I think, where you can use it as long as you attribute it. I love to because I think it's incredibly fascinating and uh, this kind of stuff gets me fired up. All right, we'll see you next time. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave taking and farewell and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. Our people expect their president and the Congress to find essential agreement on issues of great moment, the wise resolution of which will better shape the future of the nation. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress riches and military strength, but on how we use our power 
in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy, balance between the cost and hoped for advantages, balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable, balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, 
or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship 
to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same confidence as do we, protected as we are by our moral, economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many fast frustration, past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certainty agony of, of the battlefield. Disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. Happily, I can say that war has been avoided. Steady progress toward our ultimate goal has been made, but so much remains to be done. As a private citizen, I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. So in this, my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service in war and in peace. I trust in that, in that, in that service, you find some things worthy. As for the rest of it, I know you will find ways to improve performance in the future. You and I, my fellow citizens, need to be strong in our faith that all nations under God will reach the goal of peace with justice. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle, confident but humble with power, diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing aspiration. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations, may have their great human needs satisfied, that those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full, 
that all who yearn for freedom may experience its spiritual blessings. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night.